0: Is only 15 verses tonight, but I have many pages of notes, so there's always a lot in the Word, amen? You can take one verse and spend so much time in it, because God's Word's alive, and it's impregnated with truth, and the Holy Spirit illuminates all these things, and we're going to go through these 15 verses tonight, God willing, and pray that the Holy Spirit shows us all that the Father has for us tonight. Father, we thank you for this study in the book of Acts. We thank you for a blueprint. From the early church, that we can use as a reference point tonight to look at our own lives and look at our own walk and and say, Lord, this is my mission to reach the lost, to fulfill the great commission, to be uh, witnesses and to testify of Jesus Christ. Father, that didn't stop with the book of Acts, but it continues. And so, Lord, Use us tonight to do all those things. And these verses that we're about to enjoy together, Lord, open them up to us and show us the the gems and the principles that you've hidden in there for those who love you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would reveal them to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to watch it, and then we're going to talk about it.
1: In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true?
0: <laughs> Just of that in there. you missing lights? Something's weird. Can't preach until the lights are on mostly because I can't see. Maybe that's Stephen's face. So Acts 6, just a few verses, but you know, it kind of went fast. I hope you were paying attention because uh, there's a lot going on in there. So let's just take a look here. Remember, Acts is a blueprint of the early church for the modern church. Now we don't follow everything because uh, things have changed and uh, cultures have changed and even some of the the things that they had to implement from the beginning have reached and run their course. And, you know, it's a blueprint for us, but it's not something we have to follow completely to the law and get legalistic about. But there's principles in there that we need to be able to extract and apply. Now, the timeless principles of God that the early church used, they're principles not of the early church, but of the kingdom of God. And understand, we are of the kingdom of God. There's a kingdom of this world, and we don't want to be part of that. We're just sojourners. We're just passing through. We're just visiting here. We are in the world, but not of the world. The world system is like a vacuum. It loves to suck us in to what it says is important, to what it says uh, we need. Do you you notice everything about our world is uh, trying to get us to buy things and to do things and to think things? Do you notice that? I mean, if you look at advertising, they'll convince you you need this new thing. Every once in a while, I come across a person with a flip phone. And I'm like, amen. And I'm like, you're my kind of people. Because you know what? It seems like the technology progresses and all it does is swallow us up into the system. So the early church showed the difference between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God, and all of that applies perfectly to us today. Now, we get a peek into some of the administrative and cultural and logistical problems of the early church. Say problems. I'm going to talk about some problems tonight, and you're going to see some of these things crop up. The early church had problems, and they were cultural, and they had to uh, take charge of these situations. They had to pr- provide a structure. Remember, they didn't understand you know, how to plant churches and how to have leadership, and, and, and there would be you know, covering, and all of this stuff is getting worked out, the logistics of it. But they had problems to deal with, and in dealing with the problems, they began to create a structure that is good for us to look at because. it was implemented in the beginning and some of the principles apply now something we're always going to deal with in life are problems say problems again in this life there's always going to be problems to deal with personal problems relational problems financial problems all of us have dealt with those things this week when you're with people you have a relationship there's going to be problems You have finances, you get a fistful of money, everybody wants some of it, there's going to be problems. And so problems are just part of life and pretty much, uh, I hate to, you know, be Debbie Downer on Wednesday night, but we're going to have problems till the day we die. When we die and we fall into the arms of Jesus and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, our problems are over. Amen. Amen. Some of you are going there, the rest of you just didn't respond. They say the only person who has all their problems behind them is a bus driver. Right, Charles? Verse 1, notice what we're talking about in verse 1, problems. It says, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint. Oh, the church has a complaint department. A complaint arose on part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrew Jews. So you, you got a complaint. What was the complaint? Because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Let's just stop there. Notice when the problem arose. It said in, at a time when what? The disciples were increasing in number. Did you hear that? So what, what produced the problem? There was growth, and then with the growth came problems. How many would agree growth is good? Amen. Do you, do you like to, I mean, do you think it's important to grow as a Christian? Amen. So growth is good. Do you think it's important to grow numerically to see people who are lost get found and come into the church? Do you think growth is good to fill up these seats so that people who don't know Jesus can learn about Jesus and serve Jesus and go to be with Jesus when they die? Growth is good. So growth is good. Growth is necessary. Growth is a constant part of a church that's alive. If you're in a church and there's no growth, if you're in a church and there's no move of the Holy Spirit, if you're in a church and there's no conviction, if you're in a church and people don't get saved, you need to question what's going on with that church because the living church is alive and it has growth and it has moving parts and it has salvations and it has converts. So growth is a good thing. Growth is an important thing. Growth shows that there's life, that the spirit is moving. But growth always brings problems with it. Now, some people say, Lord, I wish our church was 10,000 people. See, now that that scares me on a a lot of levels. Because some of you gasped like you wanted to keep it nice and small just for you. A little God bless me club that I know everybody and I can just, you know, everybody knows who I am. What about the lost people? So some people gasp because they didn't want it to get that big. And some people gasp because, oh, my goodness, that big. I mean, there, there's a lot to think about. Be careful what you wish for. Amen. One thing, you know, they, they, if you're a preacher, you know this. They're always talking about growth and church growth and books on growth and seminars on growth and come learn eight principles of growth. Listen to me. The church grew as the Holy Spirit grew it, and God was in charge of growth. That's right. Amen. Nah, I don't get any buyers on that one. The, the Lord is in charge of growth. We don't make it grow. Charles don't make it grow. Pastor Rick don't make it grow. The Holy Spirit makes it grow. Oh, but we got better programs and better worship and pick better songs. And if you make sense when you're preaching, it'll grow. (laughs) It's a rough crowd tonight, Tom. God brings the growth. God's in charge of the growth, amen? We do what we're supposed to do. We live right. We maintain unity. We stay full of the Holy Spirit, and God brings the growth. So growth is important, but, you know, God is in charge of that. Now, why does growth bring problems? And I'll give you two basic reasons. Number one, big things require more effort to manage than little things. Big things, if you have a company of 800 employees, that's a lot harder to manage than a company of eight, If you have a family of four, that's a lot easier to manage than a family of ten. Come on, if you've grown up in a big home. My grandfather used to tell stories when the the food hit the table, there was how many kids in Poppy's family, like eight, ten, like something. They lost count of them. When the food hit the table, they would just all attack it. And he said, if you weren't fast enough, you didn't get a meatball. (laughs) You know, if you were little and had short arms. Think about that. So... (laughs) You know, I mean, little things are easier to manage than big things. And so when things get big, when things grow, you know, they become more difficult. I'll just say this, it's easier to turn a rowboat around than an aircraft carrier. Right? That rowboat's easy, two (laughs) oars. Aircraft carrier, I mean, they got a plot, they dig a course, they got, I mean, it takes a long time to turn that thing around. It's huge. So big things are good and growth is good but they require more management to effort now the second reason that growth always brings problems is this growth means more people and people make problems look at look look at your neighbor and say hey people (laughs) some people are saying yeah you bring problems people bring problems. People bring problems with them. They create problems in their interaction with one another. Problems arise. The more people you have, the more personalities you have, the more baggage you have, the more cultural classes you have, and the more problems you have. This is just reality. So if you want growth and you're praying for growth and you're believing for growth, realize with growth, there are people and people make problems. The more people you have, the more problems you have. you know, And I, and I said some of the things were the baggage and the personalities and the cultural clashes and that's really what's at the root of the issue here. It's a cultural clash between the Hellenistic Jews and the native Jews and we're gonna talk about that in just a second. The Hellenistic Jews, they were Jews but they had adopted the Greek culture and the Greek language so they lived as Greeks but they were Jews. Now they differed in the in the native Jews in that you know the native Hebrew type Jews that just didn't immerse themselves in the Greek Greek culture. They stayed true to their uh, you know Jewish Hebrew roots. So there again, what's the difference in that? That's a culture clash. The the Jews who stayed with you know the Hebrew customs looked at the Hellenistic Jews as compromisers, and you know now all of a sudden both groups are getting saved, and they're coming into the church. And now where there were divisions before, now you got people in close proximity. Do you ever notice what happens when you get people who are divided in close proximity? Come on, when you put Yankee fans with Boston fans, (laughs) right? When you put divided people, and and I mean, that's a great illustration. My dad used to tell me stories of if you went and it was Boston day, they were throwing bottles at each other. That's why they don't have glass bottles at the stadiums anymore. Two story, fun fact for you. So, people who are divided, you bring them in close. Proximity. There's a clash. This is a cultural clash between the Hellenistic Jews and the native Jews, and and they're upset. Why? The Hellenistic Jews are being neglected. There again, it's cultural. It's a a racial thing. They're, They're divided, and they're not, you know, one group is getting taken care of, and the other group is not taken care of. They're being neglected in receiving their daily food. So they're widows. The church was responsible to take care of widows. It was the culture of the day. There was no welfare. There was no government programs. You took care of your own. Seems like a good system. We should probably continue it so then we can get the government out of everything, including our pockets and everything else. So they took care of their own. Now, one group was being neglected. And I mean, it wasn't that, you know, well, they weren't getting the nicest place. They weren't getting enough food for the day. I don't know about you, but that's shameful that you got one group who was looked down upon or maybe they were smaller or maybe they were seen as, you know, because they had the Greek culture that they were second rate or second class. So they were being overlooked. And there there again, that was an upsetting thing because it's wrong and uh, it caused a clash. Now, the Hellenistic widows that, you know, were under the church's care didn't get enough food and it was, uh, you know, a shameful thing. And so now in verse two, the apostles address it. This is a good point. When there are clashes, leadership needs to address them. You know, the the idea of ignoring things, and like, you know, it's amazing what we ignore, the the proverbial elephant in the room. Don't ignore things in your marriage. Don't ignore problems with your children. Don't ignore uh, problems in your finances. Don't ignore important things. Hello, address them to all you ignorers out there. Those things might be small now, but they get bigger. Don't let it metastasize so it kills you. They address this because it it had the potential to create a lot of division and even make splits. So the apostles get together in verse two, and they basically tell them uh, in in verse two, he says, you know, so the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, "Call a family meeting. Listen, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. Stop. They, they addressed it. They called a family meeting. This is all good. These are all good principles. And they came up with this idea. They basically said, you know, this is a problem. It's a need that must be met. Uh, It's an issue that must be managed. But you know what? We're not going to do it. Now it's quiet. Oh, but pastor, we just want you to do everything so we can watch and cheer you on. No. No. People like, why why don't you do this and why don't you do that? Why don't you start up this and why don't you head up that? Why don't you come to every meeting? There's 17 ministries in the church. I can't come to every meeting. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I have children. I need time out for my sanity. So these guys said, hey, it's a problem. It's an issue. We're addressing it. But guess what? We're not doing it. You're doing it. Pick seven. And, and we're going to talk about the requirements for them. But you pick some people that can be in charge of this because it's not desirable for us to neglect the word to wait tables. This is good stuff here that we need to get it. Everybody should be using their gift to provide maximum impact in the kingdom of God. If you had the apostles who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who had the gift to preach the word under the power of the Holy Spirit, if you had them waiting tables, then the body of Christ is not functioning properly because these guys need to be in prayer, in the word, and, and allow revelation to touch them so that when they stood up to speak, God could fill their mouths with something powerful. You see, we've all got gifts, and we've got to use those gifts. And they said, you know what? This is an important need. We've got to take care of it, but it's not our gift. Listen, when you have preachers scrubbing toilets and painting classrooms and doing landscaping, and the lay people are doing the preaching and the teaching and doing sensitive counseling, the body of Christ is out of commission. When I was a young man, I worked with a pastor, and he had a, a decent-sized church, but this guy was in charge of everything. He, he, we, and I was his intern, so I did everything with him. And look, there's nothing wrong. I'll scrub a toilet, I'll shovel snow, I'm not a prima donna, that's fine. But I won't neglect the word to do those things. I'd rather there be sh- snow in front of the exits and I have the word of the Lord in my mouth for Sunday and bring the steel punch of God than to have the building on. This guy was doing landscaping, he was doing flowers, and then you know he passed away, so I'm not speaking ill of the dead. But when he got up to preach, it was like, what? <laughs> did you study? Did you take time? Did you hear from God? Well, no. He was busy doing everything else. Painting and cleaning. And and understand, everybody in the body has to do what they're gifted to do. Now, we do our primary gifting, and then out of the other time that we have, extra time, we can help in other areas where there's needs. So do your primary gift and serve where there's a need, but don't neglect your primary gift. These guys said, you know what? It's important, uh, but we are not doing it. And the people rolled with it. Verse three, the apostles delegate the important task to seven selected disciples. Now, the qualifications for those disciples are noteworthy. Listen, they had to be men with good reputation. Say reputation. reputation. You know, they, they had to have the people's confidence. What's, what is it about reputation? If you have a bad reputation you, and you're in charge, you're going to create division. Because some people are going to be for you, and some people are going to be against you. You can see this even in our local elections here. You got people, you know, who are for this candidate, not for this candidate. Uh, It's just like there's division. So, you know, these guys had to have a good reputation. They had to be above reproach. Basically, they had to be the kind of people that everybody could agree, these are good men. You know, Billy Graham types, right? Are there any of those left? Billy went on to be with Jesus. Men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? What does that mean? That means we, sometimes you don't put the most qualified or the most skilled in place. You put the one who has skill, who's teachable, who's a servant, but they're also filled with the Holy Ghost. You don't just put the, well, let's just get the best. Let's just hire some professional musicians and let's get a professional speaker and let's do a professional this. And pro- no, you gotta have people who are called and filled with the Holy Ghost. Okay, so good reputation and that, you know, they're full of the Holy Spirit and it says, look, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Did you catch that on the end of there in verse three? Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Sometimes you can... <laughs> There, sometimes there are people who are, are full of the Holy Spirit, yet they don't have the wisdom to implement what the Holy Spirit is saying in a way that is profitable to the body of Christ. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. I know a lot of smart people. I know a lot of anointed people that don't have the wisdom to implement their gift, and they wind up doing more damage than good to the body of Christ. We need wisdom. Amen. Did you ever see someone who had, had you know, zeal without knowledge like a sledgehammer just making making a mess everywhere they go. So these requirements are something to think about here. This is good in choosing leadership and and all kinds of people in positions in church. This is something that we look at when we place people in any area of ministry, whether it's the worship team or or the children's ministry or anywhere. They've got to meet these qualifications. They they can't be doing all kinds of crazy stuff and there, there were times I re- there were times I remember being on worship teams where there were people who had alcohol problems. And, and while we're doing worship, you could smell hard liquor on their breath. Don't you know that destroys the anointing? Wow. They should have never got placed there. But why did they? Because they were gifted. <laughs> and leadership didn't have enough restraint or wisdom to sit them down and mentor them and get them delivered They just got excited about the gift and they threw them up there. Look, I could tell you stories all night long. These principles work and they need to be implemented. And people who are not right, who are not filled with the Holy Spirit, who don't have wisdom, need to sit until they're ready to meet those qualifications and be used. So they put them in charge, and look what they did. They placed them, they put them in charge, they provided oversight for for it, but they didn't do the work. That's good leadership. Leadership can't do everything. Things have to be delegated to faithful people who do it, and then you know what? When it's delegated, you need to let them do it. If you, if you work for me, if you serve under me, look, I'm not going to do your work for you. I'm not going to micromanage it. I'm not a micromanager. I'm a team player. Do your job. And do a good job. And I'll give you oversight. And I'll, and I'll give you parameters. And just keep me informed. But we've got to let people use their gifts. And so this is what's going on here. They, they provided them the oversight, but they let them do. They put them in charge. The apostles delegated the things they weren't called to do to others so they could devote themselves to the things they were called to do. And that's how the body of Christ works. Notice what you know they were called to do, pray and minister the word. They knew what they were supposed to do, and they weren't willing to neglect it. That's a good thing. Verses five and six, it, uh, you know, Five and six are pretty interesting. The statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose, okay? I just want to stop there. First of all, everybody was happy with the decision. The only time ever in recorded history of leadership. It happens once in a while, right? Even a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while. And so everybody agreed with the decision. Wow. And the first and last time in the church. And and they were in in agreement. They had unity. Then they selected seven people. And these are the people they selected. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicor, Timon, Pumba. No, not Pumba. Just (laughs) Timon. Parmenas and Nicholas. So these (laughs) Nicholas was a proselyte which means a Gentile convert to Judaism. For some reason, they put that in there. So, you know, we understand what the word proselyte means. It means a Gentile who converted to be a Jew, and he was from Antioch. So Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenius, and Nicholas. Those were the people that they selected. They met the qualifications. Then what did they do? They prayed over them, they laid hands on them, and they let them do their job. And I want you to see that that's a noteworthy pattern too. When leadership uh, delegates and imp- uh, you know sets people aside to do a task, there's a selection process. Then you pray over them, and then the laying on of hands is symbolic of impartation. You know, if I if I'm calling you to do work in the church, and you know, I say, all right, you're gonna you're gonna preach to to the youth group, and I, I'm gonna pray for you, and then I pray for you, lay hands on you. There's an impartation that takes place there as the as the set man as the pastor. Or imparting to lay people to say, okay, here's, you know, I'm affirming you, here's the anointing, go do the job. It's good protocol, amen? And it's something that, you know, I've been around a long time, been in ministry, you know, for, for a long time, more than half my life. And so uh, I've seen a lot of people just not do this properly. And if you've been around, you've seen it not done properly too and you see like, well, we'll put you in charge, but we won't tell anybody, or we'll, you know, we'll let you do it, but we're not gonna give you the title, or we're not gonna give you, or we're gonna micromanage you, and that kills the body of Christ, because we gotta use our gifts. So the, the apostles do it right, and it works. Perfectly. Everybody's in agreement. It's a beautiful thing. The, the decision is made. These men are set apart and they go out and they take care of the problem. So one problem arises, one problem is solved. We're off to a good start. Verse 7, a little shift of gears. This is pretty exciting here. Then in verse 7, it said, The word of God kept spreading. Say amen. amen. And the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Say amen. Now listen to this, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Say a double amen. amen. Woo, that's awesome right there. You say, what's the big deal? The priest, I want to tell you what, Jesus came for the lost sheep of Israel. <coughs> now nah, I only got half an amen. Let me try that again. Jesus came for the lost sheep of Israel. Amen. He came for the Jew first and then the Gentile. So as these Jewish priests were being saved, this is exactly why Jesus came because it was, it was to the, the Jews first and, and they're responding to the, to the message and the priests are getting saved. They, you say, well, why are you excited about that? Because it excites the father's heart because he loves the Jewish people. And so uh, people are getting saved, the church is growing and the priests are coming into obedience here. And th- this is a, this is a powerful thing here, a large number of them and that's exciting. You know, we mentioned how, you know, it's first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles. Jesus came to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So uh, these Jewish holy men are coming in, and they're, they're, they're receiving Christ, and they're becoming part of the church, and that blesses the Father's heart. Now listen to me. Uh, many times in Scripture, we are talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers, and they're always the, the, they're always the antagonists with Jesus. They're always kind of the bad guys. Can we just say Amen. They're the ones that Jesus had the biggest problem with, but not all religious people were spiritually dark. Now it's quiet. Not all religious people were, had wrong hearts and wrong motives. There are churches that have religious leadership, but the, the, the people sitting in the pews, they just want, they just want to serve God. And leadership that doesn't lead people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Leadership that hides the word or preaches around the word or, or just tries to, you know, suppress the, the people and lord over them. There's a lot of that. I could name church denominations now. And some of you who've come out of some of that stuff realize it. And that breaks the Father's heart. But those people who are religious are not necessarily bad people. They're just religious and lost. So a great number of the priests stepped out of religion into relationship and that excites the father's heart. And look what it says here. They became obedient to the faith. Say obedient. It's not an emotional commitment that saves us. It's not a theological understanding that saves us. It's not a verbal confession that saves us. It's obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to receive him as Savior and Lord, amen? It was the obedience that made the difference in their life. They didn't just sit back as priests and go, yeah, well, this sounds like it's the fulfillment of Scripture, and, and this is good and wonderful and good for you guys. No, they said, I'm leaving behind that old religious Thing, and I'm coming into this relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah. And it's their obedience that saved them. And you know what? It's obedience that saves souls today. It's not enough to make a mental assent. It's not enough to know the right theology. I know people who know right theology and can quote John 3.16 and, you know, they were, they went to Sunday school, they were raised in church, but they're out there living in the world. And they're in sin and they're in fornication and they're in pornography and adultery and drunkenness and all that stuff. But they know the word and they know good theology and they know Jesus died for their sins. But it's not until they come into obedience. <laughs> and really surrender to him as Lord, that their souls will be saved. And so always realize that, never go through the motions, never be religious, always be obedient to what Jesus has called us to be and to do. So an exciting thing there in verse seven, verses eight and nine, we shift gears again a little bit. We talk about those people that they had set apart to a minister to the widows were also ministering powerfully in the Holy Spirit, and Stephen is one of them. Verses 8 and 9 here we see, and Stephen, full of grace and power. Say grace, grace. say power. power. That's what we should be filled with grace and power. Amen. How do you get filled with grace and power? Be filled with Jesus. You see, when you're filled with Jesus, you have grace for other people. Why? Because you've received the grace of God through Jesus Christ. When you're filled with Jesus, you have power. Why? Because the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. <laughs> I wish there were some Christians here tonight. <laughs> It says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So I want you to catch this. This is important for those, you know, for those uh, teachers and denominations like the Baptists that say all the gifts died with the apostles. Well, the apostles weren't the only ones doing signs, wonders, and miracles. The disciples were too. This guy wasn't an apostle, yet he's full of the Holy Ghost, and he's doing the works of healing and all these incredible things, the power of God resting in him. These signs shall follow them that believe, amen, come on, it didn't die with the apostles, there's nowhere in scripture that it says that, I don't know why churches teach that other than they're afraid of the Holy Spirit and they're deceived, but the the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still in operation today, in the last days, your sons and daughters, what will dream dreams and prophesy, and all of these things, they'll speak with other tongues, amen, they'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover, that's what the church is supposed to do, And here's Stephen doing it. And he's not an apostle. He's basically just a lay person here, but he's full of the Holy Spirit. And spiritually, he's on fire, and he's doing miracles. Now, people caught wind of the fact that he was doing miracles. And and the religious merchandisers there looked at what he was doing, and they were threatened by it, and they were jealous about it, so it put a target on his back. The leaders threatened Stephen, and the the way they threatened him is they came and they picked a verbal fight with him, and look at this, Stephen full of grace performing uh, great wonders and signs among the people, but some of the men of the synagogue called the freedmen, (laughs) isn't that funny? That's their title, freedmen, and they're in bondage, and they're religious, and they're resisting the move of God. Freedmen, it's like calling a bald guy curly. Freedmen, including both the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, some of of Sicilia and of Asia rose up. They rose up and what do they do? They argued with Stephen. Let's take a look at that there. So what they do is they they pick a fight with him. Why? Because they think they're smarter. They think they know the scriptures better. They they think they're more intelligent. So they pick a verbal fight with Stephen. Let's have a debate. Let's have a dialogue. Let's have a fight. Now I want to say one thing. Be careful who you fight with. Because You know, a lot of people want to fight with you. A lot of people want to argue with you. Oh, you're a Christian? Maybe in the break room, maybe at lunchtime, maybe in the cubicle next door. Do you you ever meet people like that? They always want to argue with you about your faith and challenge you, and how about this? And what about the pygmies? And what about this? And, And they got all these arguments. Be careful who you fight with. Be careful who you argue with. Why? Make sure God is giving you permission to engage them. Otherwise, the right thing to do is say nothing. Do you know when you say nothing, the fight is over? The most frustrating thing to a person who wants to pick a fight is someone who won't fight back. If God is not telling you to engage them, why? Because there are some people who are not ready to hear the truth. And, and giving them the truth is just going to make them more angry. You know, there's some people I preach to and their response to it, and they're friends of mine, and I still have interaction with them. Their response to it was so vitriolic that I don't preach to them in that way anymore because they got so angry, they began to be blasphemous and say things about God. And I said, you know what? I don't want to provoke them to blaspheme, so I'm just going to love them and build relationship with them. And slowly but slowly, this one person uh, that was just vitriolic and blaspheming, they they had to meet me here to pick something up out of my truck, and they heard the music coming out of the building. They heard the Holy Ghost drummer and that Holy Ghost guitars and all of that stuff. And they said, boy, that sounds really cool. I'd like to come visit you one time. Not that I'm a believer, (laughs) but I'd like to see. So, see, you just got to love them, and and you got to know when to get into a a verbal discourse and you got to know when to be quiet. Don't just fight with anybody who wants to fight. Some Christians think it's my job to to fight every fight. (laughs) No, sometimes no. So Stephen was supposed to stand up and talk to these guys and he's going to give an incredible defense. God willing, next time we get together, we'll, we'll take a look at it here. But he, he, he got into a verbal discourse with them and, you know, God had given them the green light, and in verse 10 and 11, it shows that this legalistic bunch of freedmen who were in total bondage and blind as a, a spiritual bat, they, they couldn't cope with Stephen. Look, it says, it actually says that word, they couldn't cope with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit which he was speaking. Check that out. And they secretly induced men saying, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So let's take a look at that right Right there. They thought they were gonna best him because they were smarter than him and they had degrees and they had titles in front of the name and behind the name and hanging on the wall. A five by seven suitable for framing. Doctor, Reverend, Pastor, Evangelist, all kinds of titles. They they were Uh, You know, they thought they could beat him, but they couldn't cope with him. Why? Because he had wisdom and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you hear it? That's that combination again. It's not enough to, you know, be familiar with spiritual things, but you have to have wisdom and he had wisdom to control himself, to articulate correctly, to to keep his passions down, to, to keep his pride down. And as he sparred with them, the Holy Spirit would just give him words that would shut them down and they couldn't answer. So they get frustrated. And in verse 11 shows the second tactic that evil people use when they can't win a debate. They couldn't beat him in a debate. So what do they do? They lied and made false accusations about him and stirred up confusion and brought false witnesses. They planted people to say, we heard him blaspheme against Moses and against this. So when they can't win the verbal fight, when they can't overcome the truth and the grace, they decide to lie, to entrap him, to try and kill him. Verse 12, they stirred up the people. And you know what? The people, the multitudes are always easily stirred up. And why? Because the devil knows how to carefully craft lies and false narratives to incite people who just don't know the truth. And if you don't think that's true, you need to look at our nation and the media right now because the media can twist and lie, and it's so full of Satan that sometimes the, the things I hear people say, whatever's good, they're against. Whatever's bad, they're for. That's the devil. I, I mean, I don't know about you. I can't even watch the news at all anymore. You say, well, why is it getting like that? Why is it so dark? Why has the enemy got a grip on all these things? He's preparing this world for the Antichrist. And you say, well, that's scary. Well, you know what? We should be focused on the fact that the Holy Spirit is preparing us for the rapture. Because we're getting out of here at some point. You know... I see all of these people, oh, we want this and we want that and we want to kick God out. And we don't want prayer and we want you Christians to shut up and we want to disarm you and we want to tell you what to do and we want to take your money and redistribute it. You know what? Someday when the church is gone, they're going to get what they've asked for. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> And think about it, when the righteous remnant is gone, what a hell this world is going to plunge into because the only thing holding back the demonic from sweeping and controlling everything is the restrainer and that's the Holy Spirit in us. And I listen to them and we want this and we want that and and the Holy Spirit's kind of whispering to me, they're going to get it someday. Wow. Mm. So they lie. They lie. And they stir up false witnesses and they, they stir up a, a false narrative and the sheep will believe it. And they stir up the people, and what do they do? They arrest Stephen, and violently they drag him before the council. The council that they drag him before is the Sanhedrin. They're the ruling body. It's all the big shots and all the important people. And again, they're going to examine Stephen just like they did to Peter and John. You know, these guys don't know what to do, but they can't stop what God is doing, and they're so threatened by it. So in verses 13 and 14, they start the proceedings with their little kangaroo court, and they start off with a volley of false witnesses. It's a mock trial just like Jesus' mock trial, and you've got you to know that. There, there will never be a shortage of liars who will lie. And, and they parade the liars up. And the charges against Stephen were these. He speaks against the holy place. <laughs> okay? He speaks against the law. He speaks against our customs. Listen to those charges. Would they hold up in any court today? No, thank God we have freedom of speech. They didn't. They had to say certain things, and if they said other things, it was blasphemy, and that was punishable by death. So, they, you know, and there again, it's not true. He didn't, he's not speaking against the holy place. He's not speaking against the law. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He's not speaking against their customs. He's completing the customs. This is the promised Messiah you've been waiting for that all the prophets prophesied of. He's not doing anything. That, none of that's true. He's not speaking against Moses. Moses is fully on board with what Jesus was doing. <laughs> Verse 15, they prepare to grill Stephen and the presence of the Holy Spirit is on him so heavily that he's reflecting the glory of God. And it says, the council saw his face like the face of an angel. The chapter stops there, but it's interesting to note before they grill him, before they try to tear him apart, before they parade their false witnesses up to make these accusations against them, they notice that his face looks like an angel. Do you think if someone is reflecting the glory of God, you you might want to not lay hands on them and kill them? Wow, he looks like an angel. Let's kill him. It shows you the, the darkness of their hearts. It shows you the darkness of religion and of religious merchandisers. They don't care about people. They don't care about souls. They don't care... If you go to hell when you die, all they care about is maintaining their power over people to enrich themselves and to make themselves feel important. Be able to recognize the religious spirit because it didn't die with the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's a demonic spirit that's alive and well today. And it's in some of our churches. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I thank you for these 15 verses, and I thank you for everything that you revealed to us tonight. Lord, I pray that we would uh, look at this blueprint, and Father, all the leadership principles, all the uh, the things that uh, occurred and cropped up that we'd realize we're going to face problems, and we need to not avoid them, but to, to face them head on. I pray for these people here tonight that if there's problems in their marriage, problems with their children, problems in their finances, uh, whatever problems, Lord, that they wouldn't Ignore the problems, but face the problems. And Lord, I know when we face problems with you, not only do you have the answer, you are the answer. Lord, I pray tonight that we would see the, those who are religious and lost and we would pray for them, Lord, that we would realize that people who are stuck in religion or stuck in cults or just stuck in secular humanism, they're not necessarily bad people with twisted hearts. They just need the truth. God, I think of all those priests that came into obedience and a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for revival in some of these religious institutions, revival fire to break out, that even their clergy would walk away and come into, uh, out of religion, out of darkness, into the light and have a, a professing relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be those who are filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom. Help us to believe you to do signs, wonders, and miracles in our churches, in our homes. Use us, God. Help us to use our gifts and, and not to be doing things we shouldn't be doing but, and neglecting what we're called to do, but doing what we're called to do. Let the body of Christ function properly. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Give him praise tonight. Praise God.